Well, this morning we'll uh, continue in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The dinner table is much more than just a place to um, consume calories that we are going to need to fuel us for the day. The dinner table, it is where community is created and sustained. It is a place where hospitality is extended and conversation is expressed. Meals um, tell stories. The dinner table tells stories and meals convey values. We, we learn much about the one who prepared the meal and those who participate. We learn something about those who participate and we even learn something about those who are absent. In fact, I would say that few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. In Corinth, a meal was an occasion to, to show social status and in a meal in Corinth would demonstrate a social stratification. And so as we look at our study today, I want us to keep in mind the importance of having a meal together, the importance of the dinner table and the dangers of using it as a means of social stratification. So let's put together maybe a little context some, uh, in which this passage of text was, was given to us. I think uh, by, by placing it in its larger context, we will um, have much greater opportunity to understand how this text applies to us 2,000 years later. What Paul has been addressing is order in the church. In other words, how does the church engage with the church when gathered for worship? This started last in our study last week in chapter 11, verse 2. How does the church engage with the church when gathered for worship? And last week we, we began this study that uh, spans chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Order in the church. What do we do when we're gathered? How do we honor one another? And primarily, how do we honor the God who has called us to worship? Last week we learned that there is a created order and that order is not to be discarded when gathered. What, we, what, what we're going to begin to see, and I think we'll see it especially today, is that what we do when gathered for worship is an indication of what we believe. And I would go ahead and emphasize that what we do when we are gathered to worship probably speaks more loudly than any statement of faith that we may print. We can put a statement of faith on our website or hand it to you. We, we express what we believe when we have our, our um, membership meetings, those types of things. But what we do when we are gathered speaks much louder than any statement of faith. We, most statement of faith that you read on church, from church websites or what have you, they're all pretty generic. They all pretty much say the same thing. But if you want to know what a church believes, 
Watch them worship. See what they do when they are gathered. Our hearts are revealed by our practice. And that will be prevalent today in our, in our text. So Paul has been talking about how does, how do the Christian lives, how do Christian lives get expressed? How do we honor Christ in all of our dealings? How do we honor Christ in, uh, when we are interacting with our pagan neighbors? We saw that in chapters um, seven through, or chapters five through seven. And now we are saying, how do we live our lives in a manner that honors Christ when we are gathered together to worship Him? So, a little preview and then we'll dive into our text. It's interesting. One of the things we see repeated over and over, I think maybe six or seven times, this phrase, when you come together, when you come together, I even titled the sermon, when you come together. There's an interesting irony in this statement, when you come together, because for the Corinthians, when they come together, they were not together. They were sharply divided. And Paul is going to address that division. And the way that this division expressed itself in our text today is that they are divided amongst, uh, among class lines. In other words, along socioeconomic lines. They were divided between the rich and the poor. And that is very plain today. The poor, when they gather together, are humiliated. And Paul um, will speak very sharply to that issue. One of the things we've been seeing in the book of 1 Corinthians is as the Corinthians, uh, as these, I don't know, shortcoming sins, uh, problems in the Corinthian church are presented, the way Paul addresses them is something that we should probably take note of because Paul addresses all of them with the gospel. Whether it is um, wisdom, uh, whether it is schisms based on who has the, who's following the greatest preacher, whether it is um, sexual immorality in the church, whether it's lawsuits within the church, whether it is false teaching in regards to marriage, whether it is who do I eat with and what kind of food do I eat, those types of things. How do I make sure that I live a life that doesn't cause my brother to stumble? Paul addresses them all with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is Paul's answer to the issues in the Corinthian church. And so it will be no surprise that today in this issue in regarding class schisms, Paul is going to present Christ and him crucified as the solution to the problem. Christ will be presented to contrast the Corinthian arrogance. In Christ's humiliation, their status with God was changed. They were slaves. They were beggars. And by Christ's Redemption, he changed their status to children of the living God. 
and they of all people should recoil at any thought of schisms or class warfare within the church. They have gone from slave, not simply to child, but slave to heir. And Paul is going to call upon the church to remember the work of Christ. So if you will, let's, uh, let's read our text, follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read from verses 17 through 34. So church, listen to the word of the living God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Interestingly, well, at least interesting to me, Paul begins this section with, I do not commend you. This is a sharp rebuke. It's interesting because in verse 2, when Paul started this section, he said, now I commend you because you remember me. But now on this topic, Paul is shifting gears. On the stuff I'm about to talk about, yeah, there's no commendation. There is no praise. There is nothing of that is praiseworthy about your actions. So there is this stern rebuke. I do not commit, I do not commend you. Now, let me just take a, a quick break away from our text and make sure we have a little bit of background of what's going on here. Um, I think a little bit of background is going to help us to understand, um, Paul's words and Paul's rebuke and Paul's, uh, advice. 
It's important to recognize that the that Roman culture was a very stratified culture. There were the haves and the have-nots, and most likely the host of a house church, remember, more likely than not, they're meeting in a house. And the owner of the house, would, have, the host, would have been the host, and they would have been one who would have been considered of the patron class to have a house that could facilitate 20, 30, 40 people would have been somebody who had some means. There would have been in this house a dining room, and typically there would have been a courtyard. Social convention would have been that the wealthier members would have been given favored status and would eat in the dining area, whereas those who were lower on the social um, class would have eaten in the courtyard during a meal. Wealthier members, as I said, would have been given favored status. They would have also more likely than not been given better food and better wine. They would have had privileged seating. While those of inferior social status would gather in the courtyard of the house, that would have, like I said, likely owned by a person of means, and the food that would have been distributed to them would have clearly designated them as lower social class. This was common Roman stratification of how they would have conducted a typical meal, public meal or meal with guests in Corinthians, in the city of Corinth during the first century. And with that as a background, let's consider our text. Paul says, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, it's for the worse. That is, when you come together, the assembly should be a time of integration. The time, the, the, time, the assembly, the corporate public assembly should be a time for integration. It should be a time for solidarity. It should be a time of unity. Instead, it has become a time of segregation, classism, inequality, and alienation. When you come together, I do not commend the way you are acting. You are following social cultural norms, not kingdom norms. You may recall when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how Paul describes the Lord's Supper as a fellowship or a partaking, a solidarity not only with Christ, but also with his people. The Lord's Supper was a fellowship. It was a participation with Christ and and a, a participation in the benefits that Christ, that being in Christ, conveys. It not only was a participation with Christ and his benefits, but a participation with the people who have been purchased by Christ who share in those benefits, that we 
are now in Christ and my brother and my sister also share in those same benefits. By partaking of the one bread and the cup, we are affirming our fellowship with Jesus and we affirm our fellowship with one another. And Paul is saying, you're not doing that. Instead, you are dividing. You are separating into cliques along social lines. And I do not commend you for that. In fact, you come together. It's not for the better, which corporate public worship should be. Instead, it is for the worse. It is to the detriment of the kingdom and it is to the humiliation of your brothers and sisters. Paul goes on. He says, I heard, I've heard this and I believe it in part. Um, just a quick comment on that. I, I think I would probably... I mean, it seems strange that Paul says, well, I believe it in part. I, I think the best explanation for that is that the, the informant, Paul's informant, who has given him these, these issues to address might have been a bit overzealous. And maybe, I think Paul's trying to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but he says, I believe it. There's problems with y'all. I've heard it. I believe that this is true. And then he makes this very, very, to me, A strange statement. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, so you are gathered together, I hear there are divisions among you. I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, when I first started putting, I'm going to camp on this just just a little bit. It's not our main point, but I think it's significant. We want to try to to understand what Paul is dealing with here. For there must be factions amongst you in order that those who are genuine or true among you may be recognized. And I and I probably, when I was first putting this message together and, and working through this, I said, oh, okay. So these factions have to exist so that um, God can point out who are true and who are false believers. And I found comfort in the fact that the majority of commentators and the majority of sermons that I read agreed with that view. But something is nagging about that, and it bothered me, and I couldn't shake it. And sometimes when something is bothering you, you should pay attention. It just seemed odd to me that Paul says, I do not commend you. He rebukes them sternly, And then he says, oh, but at least God's working out some really good things in the midst of this trouble. And then he goes back to stern rebuke. I'm like, well, that just doesn't seem to fit to me. So. I began to do a little studying and researching and praying. And I I would agree with a minority view that Paul is being, once again, as he has done often in the book of 1 Corinthians, is Paul is using sarcastic irony to drive home a point. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it, so that the elite may stand out amongst the poor. I think it fits the context. It drives home the point powerfully. I believe it in part. There must be factions among you so that the exalted ones can be exalted. And then he challenged, when you come together, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. 
when you come together with an attitude of exalting the exalted and despising the non-exalted, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. I believe there are divisions. You've exalted yourself. And when you gather for the Lord's Supper, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. In your notes, I put the Lord's Supper not. In other words, what's happening here is one group is gorging on sumptuous food and wine while others receive food and wine that is less choice. By following the cultural norms, the gospel is perverted. By humiliating some in the church, Paul concludes, this is your supper, it's not the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat for. In eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Here's the problem. Some of you are getting well-fed while you despise the church of God and humiliate your less wealthy, less socially elite brother or sister. When you do that, yeah, it's not the Lord's Supper. You may have bread and wine, but it's your supper. It is not the Lord's Supper. He advises, do you not have homes? In other words, evaluate your actions. If you're simply going to eat a meal at home, do so. If that's all it is, is eating a meal, just eat at home. But if you are going to eat the Lord's Supper, do so in a manner that honors those for whom Christ died. Otherwise, you despise the church of God and you humiliate your brother and sister. So, Just a quick summary of this first section. Their behavior brings shame upon the church by replacing the supper which enacts our need of the life-saving gospel for all, for all, for rich and for poor, for slave and for master, for male and for female, for Jew and Gentile. It replaces that life-saving gospel for a reenactment of the Roman system of segregation along class lines. And... Paul will have none of it. In fact, he's going to propose a remedy. You are bringing shame to to Christ. You are bringing shame to your brother for whom Christ died. It is not the Lord's Supper. It is your supper. As I mentioned in my introduction, Paul is going to bring a remedy, and the remedy is the gospel. And he is going to call the church to remember and proclaim For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Note the contrast. Christian arrogance versus the humility of Christ. You are arrogant and you think that, and you are, 
You are arrogant thinking that the wealthy have some sort of advantage over the non-wealthy. Let me put forth to you Christ. Let me just put up Christ next to your arrogance. Let me put his humility on the night he was betrayed. Think about that. Here's your arrogance. Here's the Lord of glory betrayed. He is betrayed by one who had pledged loyal to him and violated that bond for selfish gain. Judas received financial benefit that resulted in Christ's public humiliation. On that night, on that night, when the loyalty that was, that was pledged was rescinded for a little bit of wealth, on that night, Judas received financial benefit that resulted in Christ's humiliation. On that night, one man was welcomed by the cultural elite at the expense of another. The one and the one who was betrayed was the one who had greatest worth. And the one who had greatest worth was valued at 30 pieces of silver. So here you are in your elite society. Let me give you Christ. Let me address this issue with Christ who was sold out, the one of greatest value, the one whom angels fall down and say, Holy, 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 Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, all the earth is filled with your glory. The one who bowed before the Lamb, that one is valued at 30 pieces of silver. Let me put him forth. Judge your actions by this one who is of greatest value. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread. The night in which Jesus was betrayed would have been the night of Passover. Passover would have been the feast that celebrated the freeing of the slaves from Egypt. And not only the freeing of those slaves from Egypt, but bringing those slaves into a covenant relationship with the living God. On the night that they are celebrating, the night when God, by a mighty work, was going to deliver His enslaved people and bring them into a covenant relationship with the living God where he would end up saying, I am your God and you are my people. On that night, Jesus took bread. This would have been common. They would have, um, the bread would have been uh, unleavened bread. It was a reminder of the hasty departure from Egypt. And on that night, Jesus gives this bread a, a new significance. It is not just simply the bread that reminds you of a hasty departure from Egypt, but this bread is now identified with my body. Jesus now presents his body broken for the people as the new Exodus replacement of the bread eaten during the Passover meal. Remember, as often as you eat of it, remember that my body was broken for you. 
He also takes the cup. Again, the cup, uh, there were numerous cups that would have been uh, partaken of at, at the uh, Passover meal. This, um, this would have been one of the cups. But Jesus said, that says this, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The cup now symbols the new covenant. It is not a symbol of any lamb or goat or bull or turtle dove that was slain. The cup symbols the new covenant, which we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31. We also see references of it in Hebrews 9, 20 and Hebrews 10, 16 through 18. This cup now resembles or symbols the new covenant, saying that I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Jesus' sacrifice replaces the ineffective offering of bulls and goats. You have your supper. Let me show you alongside. Let me put alongside of that the Lord's Supper. Remember. Twice. Remember. Remember my body broken for you. Remember my blood shed for you. Every time you eat of it and every time you drink of it, remember that there was a time in the historical past that Jesus lived. Church, I'm asking us, remember, in a few moments we will be taking of the Lord's Supper and we are going to remember that at a point in time in in actual history past, Jesus lived. He had a literal Passover meal with his disciples and he died the death that you and I deserve to cover our sins. Remember, The Christian faith is not some metaphorical system. It is rooted in history. It is rooted in the fact that Jesus' body was actually broken. His flesh was torn and he was beaten. He bled real blood in his mission to seek and to save the lost. And in his death, he is actually securing the salvation for the people that he sought. I came to seek and to save the lost. I am so glad that he didn't just come to seek the lost. It's like somebody rescuing somebody who's lost or stranded. We see you. And then off they go. (laughs) We recognize you. You've been found. We know exactly where you are. (laughs) The person saying, save me. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And in this Supper, he is saying, here's the saving part. My body broken for you and my blood shed for you. Remember that through my work, you have been saved. Don't forget that. We are forgetful people. Remembrance is all through the Bible. Remember, 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 remember. We should probably pay attention. Remember. I often say, we have a book called Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy means second law. In other words, Moses is repeating the law because I don't want you to forget. The key word in the book of Deuteronomy is remember. We must remember his death because it is the most important death in history and we are forgetful people. Probably many of us went through much of this week Our minds fixed on a whole lot of other things, but when we gather together, 
remember. But we don't only remember, we proclaim. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In remembering, we recall in our minds Christ's death. In proclaiming, we call others to his atoning death. In proclaiming, we move from Christ died for my sins, and I remember that, to affirming that Christ died for your sins. At a time, a time to declare our solidarity with one another. It is a time where I remember my need and the provision made for my need, and I also see others who are recipients of the same provision. I really, really like our tradition of receiving the Lord's Supper. That is, of coming down the aisle and receiving it together. And and When we did that, there was no real theological purpose for that. It just worked. But as I reflect upon it, and I reflect upon this text, one of the joys of at least doing it that way. I'm not saying it's better. I just think one of the joys of seeing is that is that we see our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. If you're in the front of the line, you're back to your seat much sooner and you see your brothers and sisters. You've remembered Christ died for my sin and I see my brother and sister. Oh, and Christ died for their sins too. They're receiving the same provision. If you're in the back of the line, you see all of the people in front of you and you're going, man, Christ died for their sins. And there's a whole lot of people behind me. I remember what Christ has done for me. And Christ did the same thing. We are proclaiming, our gathering, our lining up to receive the elements is a proclamation that Christ died for your brother and your sister. Do this as often as you drink of it. Therefore, when we take the Lord's Supper, Paul is admonishing the church and he is teaching us Therefore, when we take the supper, we are not saying, you are my poor brother or my rich sister. No, you are my brother. You are my sister for whom Christ died. We are fellow slaves who have been freed by the power of God and have been adopted into the same family. Praise God. We, it is, we are not to be segregated by social customs, but united By Christ, we celebrate a common salvation. Knowing that Christ and remembering that Christ died for me and seeing my brother and sister for whom Christ died, I guess the question then that Paul is is, is addressing to the Corinthians and perhaps may be relevant to us is then how can I act in a way that would humiliate you? How in the world could I act in a way that would bring you shame? How can I do anything that would portray you as anything less than what you are, that is, a recipient of the same life-giving body and blood-atoning, sin-atoning blood of Christ? How can I speak of you in a manner that would cause you to be seen in a diminished way amongst one another? How can I act in a way that would elevate my so-called self-perceived superiority over you? How could I do that? When I 
am a slave who has been rescued by Christ and brought into a covenant relationship with him all by his work. And we remember that and we proclaim it every time we gather together and receive the supper. This is the Lord's Supper. It is not your supper. Roman cultural norms of hierarchy based on social standing need to be discarded. We are reminded and proclaim that we operate on the norms of the kingdom, not the norms of our culture, with which we have been graciously invited and made worthy. We are not the host of the meal. We have a call to worship. That is, that God calls us to gather together in his name. He's the host. And he does not distinguish us by social class or educational class or race or any of those things or by intellect. He has invited us to his table. And he says, partake of my food. There isn't an inner room where the elite get to go and an outer courtyard where us plebes are gathered. God says, this is my table and I'm the host of the meal and I invite all of you who have called upon my name, who have loved my son to come and partake of the meal that I have prepared. Paul then addresses this issue of drinking the the cup or eating the bread in an unworthy manner. This idea of unworthy, I think, is important. For whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. An unworthy manner, much ink has been spilled on deciding or figuring out what that means, but I think the context will definitely help us. That is, in a manner to eat in an unworthy way, at least in the immediate context, would be to eat in a manner that causes division. To partake with a view of superiority, to partake with a view without humility, to take in in a manner in which my worth is in what I own. In a broader sense, I think this phrase captures all that Paul has addressed in the letter. The core issue from the beginning of Corinthians till here, and, and really to the end of the book, the core issue has been the Corinthian pride, their arrogance, and their arrogance has affected every area of life. It has skewed their theology, it has skewed their morality, it has skewed their treatment of others, both believers and non-believers, and now it is skewing their worship. Such schismatic attitudes create contempt for those for whom Christ died. It overturns that idea of when you come together. To eat in an unworthy way is schismatic certainly uh, in the broader sense of things, is to eat in a way that causes division. To do so, you are guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. What, What a stark, terrifying statement. The idea here is that to eat in a way that makes you guilty of the... Guilty guilty of the body and blood of Christ. That is, you identify with those who crucify Christ rather than with those for whom Christ was crucified. You identify with those who crucified Christ. 
guilty of the body and blood of Christ rather than with those for whom Christ died. These are unbelievers who neither remember or proclaim the gospel. Their identity is not shaped by the gospel. They are guilty of his body and blood. How ironic. That which was given to save is now that which condemns. Well, I hope by now the Corinthians are saying, Paul, save us. Tell us what to do. I don't want to be one of those people who crucified, who's identified as one who crucified Christ. Paul says, examine yourself. Let a person examine himself. And then eat the, the bread and drink the cup. This is the remedy to the above sickness. Examine, discern, judge. Folks, none of us, well, none of us is worthy in ourselves to, uh, of the table of the Lord. We can partake in a worthy manner. The cross offers a different standard of those who may be notable or noble. As we approach the table, there are no distinguished guests. None notable except the one who invites us and the one who provides the table. When we line up, there are no distinguished guests. There are no haves and have-nots. Yes, some may have a, a... maybe in a, uh, a better financial situation than another and some lesser off. Some of you have... Um, there might be some who have great education and some who have little. There may be some with learning disabilities. But if you're of Christ, there are no notable or non-notable guests. The only one of note is the one who provides the meal. And that is Christ We come forgiven because our sins have been transferred to Christ. So examine yourself. Are you trusting Christ? This is why the Lord's Supper is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. We put a fence around the table every week that it is a call to those who follow Christ. If you are a believer, the table has been been set for you. It is a testimony that Christ died for your sins. And that your sins have been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been credited to you and so you come worthy. Are you trusting that? When we gather in a few moments, let's come trusting. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you would not participate at this moment, but I would also ask you to think about and consider the fact that There was a day in history, a day in history when Christ's flesh was torn for you. And there was a day in history where his blood was shed for you. And that to bring you into a right relationship with the living God, why would you refuse? Paul goes on and he considers the importance of this self-examination. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, that's pretty stark. And that is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. That is not 
basically eating as an unbeliever. Even if you, some are sick and some are, some die. I don't want us to think of the supper as some, something that is poisonous to non-Christians or even to Christians who partake in an unworthy manner and yet we do not trifle with the Lord's Supper. It is not a plaything. It is God's feast by which we are reminded of all of what it took to purchase us and what it took to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood where our sins are forgiven and we are his people and he is our God. We do not want to partake of it in a silly or flippant manner. So some are sick and die. We should note, and I know this is unpopular, but temporal judgment by God is still a reality. I'm not saying just because somebody gets sick that that's God's direct judgment on you. I'm just saying that temporal judgment is throughout the scriptures. Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. And Paul is saying some of you are sick and some have even died. So, what do we do? It's a proper assessment. This is the remedy for mishandling the Lord's Supper. It identifies as, a, as truly belonging to Christ and will prevent us from being judged in the end. So judge yourself. Judge yourself. If we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. It identifies us as truly belonging to Christ and it will prevent us from being judged in the end. Joining in the Lord's Supper in the spirit of the world that put Christ to death means that they will be condemned along with the world. Eating the supper with the spirit of Christ means salvation and requires loving behavior towards one another. So then, verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together, the text says, wait for one another. I... the way I translated that and I think it best is receive one another. The word wait has that as one of its meanings to receive. When you come together, receive one another. The haves are to welcome the have-nots. And instead of perpetuating the socioeconomic divide, the Corinthian church is to display the radical unity of the body of Christ. When you come together, receive one another. Verse 34, if you want to act like unbelievers, then you shouldn't even gather with the church for that will bring judgment. I don't think Paul is saying, well, just go ahead and eat in your selfishness at home. He's not just saying, well, if you want to be selfish, that's okay. Just do it in the privacy of your own home. I think the idea here is if you want to act like unbelievers, don't gather with the church. First of all, it's to your benefit because that will bring judgment upon you. Paul is not going to tolerate selfishness. He calls us to repent. Those who do not identify themselves as being in Christ's sacrifice as redeemed slave, mercied by God, should not gather at the table for that will bring only judgment. But when you come together, receive one another, love one another, Know that Christ died for them. They're your brother. They're your sister in Christ. They're on equal standing. We often say there there is... um, uh, 
the ground is, is even at the cross. The ground is even at the table of the Lord as well. We have no pedestals down there that you get to step up on. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, receive one another. So that when you do come together, it will not be for judgment. I'll conclude with this. And then we'll receive the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is communal. The Lord's Supper is communal. Note the repeated statement, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. The Lord's Supper is communal. Eating together conveys friendship. It conveys equality. It conveys, it is fellowship. It is a call to remember what Christ has done for me and a proclamation of what he has done for everybody else who is partaking. It is a barrier-shattering ordinance. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of Christ at the cross. When you come together, the church met on the first day of the week. It appears they observed the supper when they came together on the first day of the week. I don't think there's any magic in celebrating the supper weekly but it does seem to be the norm in the New Testament church. So when you come together on the first day of the week, remember what was done for you and proclaim the body and blood of Christ. The only cure for factionalism, the only cure for immorality, the only cure for idolatry and favoritism then and now is the gospel, and the gospel is portrayed in the supper. So self-exam. As our culture becomes less reflective, the Lord's Supper is a radical reminder of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Self-exam leads to trusting that Christ is sufficient to heal all that separates us from him and from others. Father, this this morning we come before you and we spend just a few moments thinking and reflecting, Lord God, Have I degraded my brother this week? Have I dishonored my sister this week? Have I thought thoughts or said words that would belittle or demean them to cast them in some sort of inferior status below me as though somehow my redemption is superior to theirs? That Christ somehow gave a little extra for me. Be merciful to us, Lord God. And let us love our brothers and sisters. Let us seek their welfare, to seek their good, to pray with them, to love them, to assist them, to remember that we were all enslaved and in bondage to sin. But through your broken body and through your shed blood, you brought us out and made a covenant with us and called us your people. So in the next just few moments, let us examine ourselves and confess our sins before Christ.
Now, our God, we thank you and praise you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen. Just a quick summary, and I'll call you to the table. And that is, first, the supper reminds us that Christ died for us, and it gives us assurance of our salvation. It reminds believers that Christ loves us. The Lord's Supper doesn't take our sins away, but it reminds us that Christ did. The Lord's Supper portrays our Father's gracious character and His steadfast love for those who believe. It shows that God has initiated a relationship with His people that will never, that will never end because the, the Supper represents the New Covenant. The New Covenant is new because God initiates the relationship and guarantees that the conditions of the covenant will be met. The Lord's Supper is a visible symbol of the unity that every believer present shares. As we look around and we see brothers and sisters eating the supper with us, we are reminded that we're part of a family, our church. We are not our own, but we are members of a body of other believers for whom Christ has also redeemed. And this is what Paul meant when he said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. And so with that in mind and having examined ourselves, those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would invite you to the table that the Lord has set. He is our host and he invites you. Welcome to the table of the Lord. You can come forward at this time.